Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host, that's me, Scott Sinclair. We're episode 218, and today we are going to talk about some lessons when raising money for your young business, your young enterprise. I was uh, participating in a in a pitch. I was receiving uh, a pitch the other day, someone wanting uh, me as part of an investment club to make an investment in their relatively new business. Now, look, at, I'm not going to tell you the industry. I'm not even going to tell you what country this business was in. I'm not going to give you real numbers. I want to protect the integrity uh, of the process that was started, even though we're not contractually bound to anything. But I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, let details slip on somebody's business. But I do want. So I'm going to sort of skate around that. Just understand that up front. But I do want to teach some lessons or observe some lessons from this experience because I see them over and over again in my business when we're investing, when we're buying companies, when people are pitching us to uh, lend them money or invest equity into their business. We see this same sort of scenario over and over again. So there's good lessons uh, to be learned and they're relevant to to those of you that are trying to raise money for your new business or young business or at any stage, frankly, of, of your business, these are relevant lessons. So it's important to note before we start here that this particular business was not a cutting edge technology business. It wasn't uh, or isn't uh, a, a business that is so out there and has such excitement to it that no one knows how to value it. No one understands how it could possibly be valued. It wasn't OpenAI's chat GPT, for example, that I've talked about on this show, the artificial intelligence, the robot that is so helpful that I think is just going to transform the world and is now valued based on uh, private placements, uh, I understand, of equity. It's now valued at $28 billion and it's pre-revenue. It's a prototype software language, uh, learning language model that is, you know, pre-revenue. I think they're just starting to open up some subscriptions. I use it for free still. And so $28 billion, this is not that scenario. This is a company, the company that was pitching me that is in a legacy business. Their product might be considered a commodity. We all use it pretty regularly. We use that product, maybe not every day, but very often. And uh, that's the company that was being pitched. Okay. And before I start into the problems, I'm going to tell you up front, I'm not investing in this business. And I'm going to tell you why I'm not investing in this business. A business It boils down to structure of the investment and valuation. All right. And that's what we're going to talk about today, more the valuation piece and the structure piece that will be for another show. And we've covered it many times before on the Martinis with Scott channel, which was the predecessor to the Winning Momentum podcast. You can find that all on YouTube, for example, or Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to your audio podcasts. We've talked about structure a million times and we will continue to do so because the structure of a deal, the structure of a deal can mitigate the problems with the pricing of a deal, right? You ever heard that expression, you name the price, I'll name the structure, or vice versa, whichever you want, okay? And so so we're going to talk about that some more. But before we get into the, the problems with this and to tell you why I'm not investing, what the issues are, let me start by telling you all the awesome stuff about this company, because there was a lot of awesome stuff about this company. I was really excited about it. I'm still excited about it if the valuations were different and if this thing was coming around to 
something that made sense for me. So this company, let's call it, uh, it's a relatively new company, you know, sort of two full years of operations, it appeared to me, maybe three years. And despite its young age, had a management team that was rock solid. It had a management team that were experienced, not only in management and in larger companies, uh, but also in they built other businesses in the past and sold them. So they exited, they made some money, they're sophisticated, they were smart, uh, they're responsive. I was texting with one of the guys and uh, the head guy there, one of the founders, <coughs> asking questions, getting immediate responses, getting things sent to me, and they're likable. They're likable people, um, serious business people uh, who are likable and responsive and smart and sophisticated and experienced and all of those things. Their product, as I said, is sort of a commodity, something that's nothing tricky about it, um, but and it's something that we use every day and probably don't attach a lot of value to that. But notwithstanding, this management team had found a way to differentiate what they were doing uh, understood their place or understands their place in the in the market, where there's space for them, and how they could be different and add value and, and make some sales as a result. They understood their numbers, right? So whenever I ask questions about this number or that number, uh, they're great. They're they're not financial people, but they understood their numbers very well, as all business owners need to do. And they were able to answer all questions that I may have had along those lines. They had tons, lots of sales leads. They're out selling. Um, they've got locked in sales uh, potential. They're in an industry where you sign sales contracts. But what that does is it sort of sends you on this nine month or one year or year and a half long process of integrating your systems with the, with the potential customer systems and then they buy some of your product, but they may not rebuy much of their product. You get forecasts, but you know, so they had a bunch of these potentials, locked in potentials with signed sales contracts, but not necessarily the revenue yet being seen coming out of those contracts, but they've done a terrific job on that. They have brand awareness, right? They've done a great job of branding and creating assignment around this product product in this commoditized type space. Uh, so much so that they have they have potential um, sales coming from other markets outside of their home jurisdiction, which I have not told you what that jurisdiction is, but they they have people calling from around the world saying, hey, we'd like to get a hold of that product, maybe be a distributor in our geographical area. So all sorts of positives, all sorts of positives and good energy coming out of this company, which makes you want to invest, makes me want to invest. Um, one of the better situations that I've heard in a long time when it comes to a pitch um, they're raising a modest amount of money. It's not like they're sometimes you see these these pitches and you know it's a relatively new business. And if we just had $73 million, we would be able to execute on this plan and everything's gonna be great. You don't know these people. You're medium, you're not even meeting them face to face, you're over the internet on a you know Teams call or whatever the technology may be, and you're being hit up for this, you know, implausible amount of money. And and it just doesn't. It's never a deal is going to get done. It's just never going to get done. Whereas these people, it's a very modest amount of money. Anybody who even comes close to calling themselves an investor would be able to afford afford this amount of money that they're looking for. And in fact, the raise that they were doing was was partially committed. 
um, they'd already had lead orders, uh, verbal commitments from existing, existing stakeholders that they would double in. And so it was really a scenario of, hey, we're holding this open for you guys if you want to come in and invest with us. And so, you know, it makes it exciting and it actually kind of turns the table. It makes you want to, as an investor, it makes you want to buy, right? As opposed to them selling you, it makes you want to buy. And if you're trying to raise money for your business, that's what you want to do. In any thing to do with financial markets, no matter what part of financial markets you are, you want to create a situation where you're where the person you're targeting wants to buy. You don't want to have to sell them. It doesn't work very well in that industry. You want them to buy, and these guys did that really well, really uh, really well. So they raised money before the exact same product that they're pitching to us. They raised money uh, about a year ago. They said, okay, so they raised it about a year ago, and this is where the first little trouble comes into my world. <clears throat> they raised double the amount, more or less, of the money that they're trying to raise now. So the last offering was double the size of this offering, and they did it at about a third the valuation that they were asking for now. In other words, they want me and my investor group to participate in a raise that is priced three times more than the raise that they did a year ago, three times, okay? The value of their company, according to them, has tripled in in just one year. So that's the first problem. I'm wondering to myself during this, like, why am I paying three times as much as the last person? And the answer, the answer that you would get from management team if I had put that directly to them would be, well, the, the sales, the sales. We've got all these sales contracts signed and we can distribute our commodity widget and so the the prospects of the business are way different than than what it was a year ago. And the last raise was coming off a year. We had just finished a year when we did the first raise that was at a third the price. We were just coming off a year where the where where we had very little we had no revenue basically. And now we've gone through a year where we've had some revenue and the revenue was not a lot. It's, you know, it was a fraction of the revenues of my business, for example, but it was not nothing. It was definitely enough to be a proof of concept. And as I said, they had all of these um, sales contracts signed, which clearly was going to bring in some more revenue. So that would be their answer um, to this progression of value. But I always see a more fundamental problem um, with the way that these deals are structured when you come from a space or you or you see a space and you study a space such as the technology venture capital world that has a really formulaic capital structure plan associated with every deal you know this this series financing if you're in the space you know what that is and if you're not you don't know what that is but we're going to talk about it in a second just to give you some background on it but if you have a preconceived notion from day one my business is worth zero when I hang up my shingle, and then I'm going to get to this stage, and I'm going to raise money. I'm going to raise this amount of money at this valuation, and then you know, a year later when the risk has changed and I've moved to the next step, I'm going to raise a certain amount of money at this higher valuation and do that three or four times. You've mapped out what your capital structure is going to be, and now when you're pitching the first people, the initial raise, you're going to say, and by the way, we're going to raise more money later at a higher valuation. And therefore, you will not be diluted as badly as if we were just, and I won't be diluted as badly as if we were just raising a bunch of money right now. That's the plan. And you're saying to me, Scott, that's how it works. 
Like, what else could you do? And I'm telling you, no, it's not how it works. It's not how it works in reality. It's great to plan that way. But, you know, don't forget that this comes from the, the venture capital world. It comes from the venture capital world. And in the venture capital world, eight out of 10 de- deals fail, right? They, they say, you know, if you've got 10 deals as a VC, two of them outright go bankrupt. Six of them bump along forever and never do anything, never return any, anything to you. And so the company has not actually failed, but the investment has failed, right? From the venture capital's perspective, you didn't get a return from that. So you got two that didn't give you a return because they went bankrupt or otherwise insolvent. Six of them that didn't give you a return just because they never generated a return. And it's the other two. It's the last two. It's the 20% of your portfolio that you get the home runs on, which generates the average return across the 10. So you lost on eight, but you made enough on the two. Very important concept. You made enough on the two so that across the 10, you had an average return of whatever it is that you're tar- targeting, call it whatever, 12, 15, 18, 20%, somewhere in that range, okay, depending on who you are and what your, you know, what your risk threshold is. But that's 20% of the portfolio works. But don't forget, that's 20% of the portfolio. It's not 20% of the businesses, it's not 20%, 20% of the deals that you saw. Because you didn't fund every deal that you saw. The reality is you passed on a lot of deals most of the deals. And the reality is that maybe 2% of all new businesses actually end up generating some wealth. Okay. And we've talked about this on this show many times before It's one of the premises. One of the entire premises for this show is that only 2% of new businesses create intergenerational wealth, create enough money that you can retire and pass your wealth on to the next generation and have a real impact on on the net worth of of you know your kids and their kids or the community if that's the way you choose to go only 2% of the businesses started ever get that opportunity so no the formula doesn't work it works 2% of the time but the rest of the time the whole thing just falls apart and it falls apart because the business didn't succeed and create that value as you thought it might uh, so uh, when you first started it and created that, you know, formulaic capital structure and capital plan. And so, you know, this is this, you, you know, the downside of this series A series financing. And just for some context, series financing, I'm just going to define that for you if you're not familiar with the space. It's a common method used by startups and new companies to raise funds for growth and development. It involves raising capital through multiple rounds of investment where each round represents a series of financing. And, you know, most often people think of it as four rounds of financing, commonly referred to as Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D. And they're generally structured in increasing amounts of capital for the company, but also in hugely increasing valuation, price for the investor, the cost to the investor uh, to get in the door because the company has achieved milestones, right? So Series A, would be founder shares. It would be the initial venture capital angel investors who are willing to take a higher risk in exchange for equity ownership. And the company's just raising a little bit of money because the valuation is really, really cheap. And then you move on to series B, let's say a year later, and you've proved the concept of your business, much like this company that was pitching me had proved the concept of its business. And now it was at the next stage of growing. And, and so you need more money 
to do that, and you want to do that at a higher valuation for the Series B. And part of the pitch of the Series A is, oh, this is what we're doing now. Here's where we're going to get to. And then when the risk has changed because we've gotten that far and we need to expand further, then we're going to go to Series B, and we're going to do it at a higher valuation. Therefore, you made money, right? Didn't get your money out. Didn't get the cash in your pocket. But from a value perspective, from you know your financial reporting, noting things on a piece of paper, you made money. And then you move on to Series C, which could be you've already got a successful business model, and now you're just looking to scale it. And once again, you raise more money, and you raise it at a higher valuation. Same goes for Series D, which could be, you know, could be sort of making some acquisitions, going into foreign markets, what have you. Okay, so you formulaically step up the amount of money you're raising and the price that you're paying, the value of your business, because in fairness, the risk of the business presumably has changed, and so that all works out really well when things are working out for the two percent of businesses that actually succeed. But for the 98% of businesses, um, it doesn't uh, succeed at all because you're locked into valuation uh, increases because you pitched them to the last series. You're locked into valuation uh, situations that maybe don't make sense based on the progression of the company itself, but also based on external markets. Don't forget, a year ago, when this company had done its first raise, well, we didn't have the rampant inflation We didn't have the interest rates. We didn't have the tightening capital markets. We didn't have all of these problems that we see today. Um, Now, we didn't have the opportunities either. Back then, we had supply chain problems. We we were coming out of a pandemic. And so who, who the hell knows what the market was back then? So that's all fair. That's all fair. But we have a whole new list of problems right now that didn't exist back then. And so it could be the market changes. And if you're locked into... This this valuation, this capital structure formula, I find that it puts uh, it puts companies in an inflexible position because the last thing on earth, the very last thing you want to do is go back to your angel investor, go back to the seed round people, and say, "Ah, it didn't work the way I thought. We're not tripling our valuation. We need to do it like this. We need to change the structure." Um, you know, that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal. That's kind of a big deal. Go back and renegotiate it. And so companies become inflexible and therefore they start to rationalize the new valuation on this round, which leads to the next problem with this company, which was that the premise of the valuation, don't forget, I love this company. I like the management team. I thought they were terrific and I would want to do this deal but I can't. And here's why. The premise of their valuation in the pitch seemed really, really high. It made no sense to me, the valuation. And the premise is, they said, Scott, companies in this sector, companies in this industry sell, which is our exit, you know, two, three years down the road, we're going to sell. And when they sell, they sell at revenue multiples of seven to 12 times. I may have got that number wrong, but in that range, seven to 12 times revenue multiples. And therefore, Companies in our business are sold at a 7 to 12 time revenue multiple. Now, is that true? I've talked a lot about valuation on the Winning Momentum podcast, okay? And, and I've defined value for you. And just to remind you, value, I'm a business valuator by trade. I've written fairness opinions. I've written uh, expert witness reports for courts and litigation and family matters. 
And so I am an expert in business valuation and value by definition, let's never forget, is the amount of money that you can put in your pocket, okay, in the future, the amount of money you can put in your pocket from this business as its owner, uh, discounted for two things, discounted for time. So you're going to discount that to today, right? Because you're putting the money in your pocket in the future, year one, year two, year three, discounted for time and discounted for risk. Okay, because some companies like startups are way more riskier than other companies, uh, companies that have been stable and spitting out the same amount of cash every year for some long, long history. And so you discount that for these two things. Right. And so the starting point for coming up with what the value of a business might be is you need to have some idea of what the future cash flow of the business might be, because that's the money you're putting in your pocket. How much cash? does this business generate in the future, right? Now, how do you do that? Well, you start with revenue, sure. You start with your revenue, but then you start deducting your expenses and your working capital draws out of that, you know, out of those earnings. The point being that cash, which is what's important, is not revenue. Cash is not revenue. You have to generate revenue to generate cash flow. Sure, sure, that's what you have to do. But Cash is not revenue. There's all sorts of other things that come out of the revenue before you end up with cash relevant to what a shareholder can benefit from. And so multiples of revenue have basically never have any, anything to do with the intrinsic value, the standalone value, the internal worth of a business. Uh, no business is worth seven to 12 times revenue. It's just as a business valuator, my mind explodes when I hear that sort of thing. So what does that mean? Does that mean that this sophisticated, awesome management team that I love so much is lying to me? Are they lying to me? Are they naive about all of this stuff? Um, or in fact, do some transactions happen in this industry at the seven to, times, uh, seven to 12 times revenue multiple? Well, maybe they're not lying. Maybe they're not naive. And if that's the case, how do I, how do I reconcile this information. And well, it reminds me back in the tech days, I was in Ottawa. I had started a, a corporate finance boutique, turned into a sort of a merchant bank, investment bank, and uh, uh, under the name Merchant Capital for those that care. But back in Ottawa, Can uh, Canada, and I'm going to call it the mid 90s as the tech market was heating up. And we were doing a ton of venture capital deals, helping tech companies find VC placement in those days, brokering, advising, uh, sorry, advising, <laughs> brokering, advising on those sorts of transactions. And we, we did, I don't know, like 80, 100 deals in two, three years. It was a lot. It was a lot. And this is back just to remind those that aren't old enough or don't think back that far. Uh, that this was the, the days when Microsoft dominated everything in technology. They just dominated. And one lesson I learned back then doing those deals, that let's say, hypothetically, you, you had created a world-beating piece of software. You sat in your basement with maybe your buddy, and you coded out something. And in a niche application, you have the world's best solution that everybody who's using a personal computer back then should have had, okay? Let's say you did that. And I will tell you, even in the Ottawa market, there were hundreds of people that had done exactly that. It was a lot. You just have the world's beating product. In this example, a piece of software. 
but you had no distribution. You had no user base to sell this product to. You had no marketing money. You had no marketing savvy. You had no way to get attention. You didn't even have a company. You had you and your buddy in a basement coding out some product. For those of you that were around those days, sound familiar? What is that piece of software worth to you? That solution. What is it worth to your company? Okay. It is the best piece uh, of software in the world at that time for that solution, but it's worth absolutely nothing. Zero. Why? Because you have no distribution. You have no ability to sell it. You have no money to sell it. You have no prospect or know-how on how to sell it. All you have is the greatest product in the world that no one's ever going to see. And you're going to, if you, if you weren't around in those days, you're going to say to me, oh, that's not possible. I'm telling you, if you're in the tech world and many other spaces, by the way, this is common throughout business. You just, you can have the best product, but if you can't sell it, you're worth zero. Okay. That is the history of the tech business is the history of business in general. If you can't sell the world's best product, you're going to lose. Nobody cares about the product if you can't sell it. Now, what is that same piece of software that you created? What was that same piece of software worth to Microsoft? Okay, dominated the space. Every user of a PC in the world pretty much in those days was using Microsoft and they were paying a subscription fee. And what if Microsoft could take your world-beating niche product, software product, bolted on to what they had that already existed and charge a little bit more to their users, which was pretty much everybody in the world using a, a PC uh, for the privilege of having bolted on this extra functionality. Well, what is that worth? And the answer is it's worth a lot, maybe billions. Maybe Microsoft could make billions of dollars a year off of your add-on to their distribution. So the exact same product is worth nothing to your company and it's worth billions and billions to another company. In this example, Microsoft, okay? Why, in this example, distribution. That's why. They already had the users. They were already a subscription. They could just add this on, jack up the price uh, for the functionality, and there you go. They made billions. You were making nothing. Now, in the merger and acquisition world, if you're buying companies and selling companies, if you were that software company and you were trying to sell your business, you know, you have broadly speaking two types of purchasers. One would be a financial purchaser, and this would be somebody like a private equity fund, a venture capital fund, angel investors, you know, somebody who's not in the business. They're in the business of making investments, right? And then your second category would be a strategic purchaser. And that means any market a participant, someone who's already in your industry or relating industry, related industry that would benefit from some sort of synergy coming out of the acquisition. Synergy, meaning one plus one equals more than two. Okay, there's some synergy. So in the software example, well, the Microsoft would definitely be a strategic purchaser. I might be a financial purchaser, but Microsoft is is definitely, in that example, a strategic purchaser because in their case, the one plus one equals billions. Lots of synergy, okay? Now, if you were the seller of that business, would you expect Microsoft to pay you for those synergies? Is your product, are they going to write you a check for billions and billions because that's what the product is worth to them? 
Are they going to pay you billions of dollars? Or are they going to pay you zero? Because that's what your code is worth to your business anyways. Your business is worth nothing. Which one is it? Well, the answer to that in the M&A business is, first of all, we call that a strategic purchaser premium. So you have the value of the company. In this case, I said it's pretty much zero, which maybe is not the true. Maybe you would say, well, we put so many uh, person hours into developing this code at X dollars an hour. And so our cost is this. And, you know, maybe it's worth whatever, $100,000. Well, if they pay you anything above that $100,000, that's what we call a strategic purchaser premium. Because why would somebody pay you more than what it's worth? Well, because they're going to benefit from the synergies that they have when they integrate this into their own business and they're willing to pay a premium for that. Well, how much would that premium be? Maybe they'll pay you a million dollars for that code, which we, we just decided was worth somewhere between zero to a hundred thousand dollars. Maybe they'll pay you a billion dollars for it. Okay. What would the variance be? Like, why would it be a billion and not a million? Well, it depends on what's going on at the time in the market um, is Microsoft feeling competitive pressures? Does this particular code at that particular time help them add a ton of value immediately, whereas it would take them nine months to write it themselves or steal the idea or do whatever? So there's all sorts of things that are outside your control that determine what the purchase price is from the strategic purchaser, how much of a strategic purchaser premium they're willing to attach to the value of your business. Okay. So let's apply this lesson to the business that I was being pitched that, again, was not in the tech space, but the same concept applies to everything. They claimed that a typical transaction in their industry was 7 to 12 times revenue. So in this industry, in this particular industry, and in fact, in every industry, if I were a strategic purchaser and I could take this unique product, uh, a commodity product, that they found a way to make unique and they understood their, you know, their space within this, this industry. If I could take that product and I could sell it through my massive distribution network, if I could get rid of all of your people, all of your management team, all of your, how do I say this without giving too much away, all of your fixed assets and logistics that go along with what you've tried to create from scratch, if I can get rid of all of that, and just sell your product at my own only really incremental cost is the variable cost of that product, the manufacturing, what have you. <clears throat> if I could do that, maybe this thing is worth a lot to me, right? If there's cheap money available to me um, because there's ample capital in the world at really cheap prices a couple of years ago or a year ago, then maybe I'm willing to spend some of that cheap currency. Uh, to get you in the door right now. If I'm under significant pressure to grow, maybe I'm a public company. I need to hit quarterly earnings. I need to do something exciting, like an acquisition at a big valuation. Okay, These are things that are outside your control. But for me, as a strategic purchaser, maybe they entice me to pay you a bunch uh, of a strategic purchaser premium. Okay, So <clears throat> if those condi conditions exist, which I would argue have existed uh, for a decade, up until maybe a year ago, but if those conditions existed, then uh, certainly possible that transactions would take place at these huge multiples that this management team is claiming. So I haven't done the research on it. I don't really care to, um, but I'm not 
I'm not prepared to dispute the facts that were given to me. I'm certain there were instances where transactions took place at those values. So here's the fundamental question. Is the historical data being past transactions in historical markets, meaning it took place given you know circumstances before, um, if, if all of that tells you that companies of a certain size have previously sold to another larger company at a multiple of revenue that is huge in the 7 to 12 range, even though that company that's being sold never made any money, it's never made any money, but it's selling at these huge multiples in the past, does that mean that this company should today be valued in the absence of a sale to a strategic purchaser? Should you invest in the company in a value based on that valuation metric? And I think the answer is quite clearly no, which is why I'm not investing in this business, and no one who is a sophisticated investor would do the same. There is zero chance, for example, that a private equity fund, a fund whose entire point, the whole reason it was created as a fund was to buy smaller businesses, merge them with other smaller businesses that they bought to turn them into a larger business, and then to sell that larger business to an even larger business at a higher multiple, okay? So you get the benefit from both increased earnings because you put a bunch of businesses together and you turned a lower multiple into a higher multiple. It's that old private equity saying, you know, you buy at four, multiple of four times earnings or EBITDA, but not, not revenue, but four times EBITDA and you sell it at eight times EBITDA because the company is less risky because you've grown it, you moved to a next stage of life, it's much larger because you merged it, you use it as a platform for other businesses. And so why, why would a sophisticated uh, investor such as a private equity fund pay for the valuation metric on exit, why would they pay that up front? That doesn't make any sense. If they're in the business of buying at four and selling at eight, buying at four, creating value, selling at eight, they're not going to buy at eight, create some value and sell at eight. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. They get the create value part, but they don't get the four to eight, which is kind of the entire point of their business. All right. And so if you say the exit is seven to 12 times revenue and you want to sell me going in at seven to 12 times revenue, eh, I'm a little offside with that because I know what I'm doing. I'm sophisticated. I'm not a private equity fund, but I act like I'm a private equity fund because that was my training. But if you're a retail investor, okay, so you've got sophisticated investors and retail investors. Well, a retail investor is someone who's not really sophisticated, um, who's just making an investment who isn't concerned about portfolio risk. So for example, if you're a venture capital, it's a private equity fund. If you're me, what you're thinking is, oh my goodness, only 2% of businesses succeed and maybe only 20% of the ones that I choose succeed. And so I need to not give away my profit on the ones that succeed to make up for all the ones that fail, right? But if you're a retail investor, investor if you're you know, uh, a person with a brokerage account and you make two or three stock trades, you're not thinking about that. You might be thinking about diversification, okay? but you're not thinking of it in that way. What you're thinking is, hey, I could make a bunch of money on this. So the the if you're someone who's not sophisticated, you might look at this opportunity and think to yourself, wow, wow, revenue is going to increase. It's going to increase. I'm going to buy this stock right now as being pitched to me, and then their revenue is going to go up eight times this year, which is what the projection was. Okay, don't forget, they had the sales contracts. Now, we might say eight times, that's not possible. 
but they'd already signed these contracts. And so it was plausible, not guaranteed by any stretch, but it wasn't impossible. Okay. So as a retail investor, you think, oh, wow, that's going to go up eight times in the year after my investment. And if I apply the same consistent multiple, when we sell this thing a year from now, that means I got eight times my money back. If I had the same multiple going in and the same multiple going out, and the driver of the multiple, in this case being revenue, went up eight times during the year, I've, I've, that's, a, that's 800% return for me in one year, like a real 800% return. Ding, ding, ding. You start getting dollar signs in your eyes, whereas the sophisticated purchaser is looking at the value of the business today and is thinking about, is not thinking about the business being sold. It's thinking about what it is today, the risks associated with growing that business, the risks of getting that increased revenue, the risk of the market changing uh, in short or long periods of time, the risk of getting the business positioned for sale, the risk of actually selling it. You know, are there buyers? Is there capital available when we get to the point of selling it? And then they factor in this idea that 98% of businesses never get to this stage. They never create the wealth. And therefore, you need to get a home run out of the 2% that do create the wealth, just like the VC in the 20% of the portfolio succeeds. Okay, A retail investor doesn't look at any of that. They just look at, they talk to their stockbroker, and their stockbroker said, hey, you should throw 20 grand into this thing. Maybe you get eight times your money back in a year, right? And so that's exactly what happened. You could see this coming. I could see this coming a mile away, and it's exactly what happened. On the pitch is that people with some experience like me, I ask some questions, love these people, would love to do their deal, makes a lot of sense. But if you have this level of sophistication in investment and capital rising, raising and valuation, you just find the deal way too expensive. It just makes no sense to me. Whereas the less experience, what we would call the retail market in this investment club, they love the deal. And I suspect this company is going to do very well raising this amount of money. Don't forget, they were looking for a modest amount of money. My bet is they're going to succeed on that raise and they're going to do it at the valuations that they're asking for, the pricing that they're asking for. You know, we see this all the time. We see this all the, all the time in high growth uh, industries, high growth companies and capital raising. Consider the Canadian cannabis market several years ago, what is that, five, seven years ago in that range. <laughs> when that was at its heights, right, in Canada, they had we had legalization of cannabis. We had a bunch of companies go through Health Canada and get their licensing. And if you had a license, if you had a prospect of getting a license, if your application was in, you seemed to know what you're doing, and you had a decent PowerPoint deck, there was a point. There was a point in that industry where you could raise substantial amount of money, tens of millions of dollars, on an initial placement pre-IPO at $150 million valuation. Your PowerPoint deck and your application form and your security check with Health Canada was worth $150 million back then. There was no earnings. There was no revenue. There was no business. There was no greenhouse. Nobody was growing anything. Nobody was processing anything. There was nothing being sold. But still, you could raise money at this very large valuation. Now, do you think that those valuations were driven by sophisticated investors? Were they driven by financial institutions, fund managers uh, that were looking to jump into the space and that was just the cost of business? Do you think that was going on? Or 
was it driven almost entirely by the retail market. The retail market who were buying pre-IPO shares, IPO shares that were being called by their stockbroker and being promised a huge amount of wealth, which by the way, happened, right? These deals lasted for several years. You got in, you got out, you held on, and it took, I don't know how many years, three, four, five years before the bubble burst. And all of these things went to very little. I see uh, Canopy, sort of the last remaining largest Canadian licensed producer, uh, laid off 800 people in Smith Falls, Ontario, small community where they had their largest greenhouse grow and they're, they're taking a large step back in the business. So that whole bubble just blew up. Okay, And if you were a sophisticated fund manager, you could see that coming a mile away. And so you hesitated to jump in. You had other risks in that business because you didn't want to be associated with that product. Um, but also just on the merits of the investment, do you ride the bubble? Do you ride the bubble? And if you do so and you're sophisticated, you do it knowing that you are riding the bubble and that someday it's going to go away. It's just a matter of when. All right. Uh, I, I will upset a great chunk of you by telling you that's exactly what Bitcoin is right now. I will, for the older people, remind you that that was the tech business way back when. Okay, in the tech bubbles in the 90s that burst in the early 2000s, that was largely retail and small trading, uh, risk-taking type funds. But to a large extent, it was retail that drove a lot of that speculation in the bubble. I'm not suggesting there weren't real companies. I'm not suggesting that real VCs and fund managers did invest in you know, whatever, um, Amazon or Tesla or real companies that sort of were created way back when. Of course, Google, of course there were. There was real businesses and real sophisticated money that went into those businesses. But there were also online pet stores uh, that didn't really exist at huge valuations. All of that was retail driven. We see it all the time. And uh, we see it all the time. And that what was go- that's what was going on with, with, uh, uh, with cannabis, with tech, and with Bitcoin, and with many other bubbles throughout history. So what lessons have we learned about raising capital and investing uh, in businesses, in private businesses from this story? Well, a couple of things I'd like to focus on just quickly to sum this thing up is remember, there are different categories of investors, sophisticated and retail. Think of it that way. Okay. And they look for different things and sophisticated people are looking to get in at a fair or cheap valuation to work beside you for growth, to be there when more money is required. Now, there'll be some pushback on that statement. We can talk about that on a on a later show, but that should be the business they're in. And then for everybody to exit later for a good profit. Okay. That's what they want to do. The retail side, the retail investors, they don't, they they think about things differently. They're thinking about that trade. They're not thinking about portfolio risk, as I said, and that a huge, you know, 98% of businesses fail. They think to themselves, Hey, I found this one deal or this one industry and things could go up eight times in one year, and I'm in. I'm going to throw 25 grand or 50 grand of my saved up kids' college fund into that transaction. And what I'm telling you is, if you're raising money, you can sell that. You can sell that deal. Should you sell that deal? Well, that's a different question. That's very much a different question, the ethics of going to that retail market. 
but it works and it happens every single day. And this company was an example of that. And they're going to raise money and do very successful because of that. If you're a real t- retail investor, what do you do about this problem? Well, <laughs> you try to become more sophisticated and you try not to buy in to the to the hype and to the bubbles. And if you are buying into the hype of the bubbles, look at nobody's immune from that. I'm not immune from that. Okay. But know what you're doing. Know that you're just gambling. Okay. And as long as as long as uh, the wheels on the bus are turning, maybe you're going to be okay. But someday they're going to stop. Okay. Will you still be on the bus when it stops? Right. That's what you need to think about. And so I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be a retail investor. I'm just saying you need to at least understand what business you're in when you're doing this sort of thing, because most businesses fail. I mean, if you're a sophisticated investor, you know, if things are so frothy, you hear, if you listen to uh, CNBC or any of the business channels, you hear this from fund managers all the time. Ah, the prices are too much. I can't find any deals. We're sitting in cash, right? You hear that all the time. You hear that from Warren Buffett all the time. Everything's overpriced. We're just sitting in cash. Then things crater on prices, and he jumps up and spends you know tens of billions of dollars on one particular investment. If you pay attention, you hear that all the time. <clears throat> the temptation when you're a sophisticated purchaser, sorry, investor, is to is to chase the deal and pay the valuation. I like these guys a lot. I like their company and their product a lot. Should I chase it at the valuation that they want? You need to fight against that as a sophisticated investor. Second lesson or another lesson is that the potential value of a business on exit, if I can sell this business for seven to 12 times revenue, two years from now, one year from now, whenever, that's not the value of the business today, okay? And baked into that valuation metric is a sophisticated purchaser premium that you may not get. You may not get it, okay? Because it's not the intrinsic value of the business today. If you want to invest, if you're trying to sell me, a piece of your company today, I'm not going to pay you for what might happen three years from now. It's a consideration. It's a mathematical consideration, okay? Because that's part of the future cash that I can put in my pocket that should be discounted for time and risk, right? But the multiple in the future is not the multiple today. You need to value your company um, as is, where is. You need to value it on today. And you need to, you need to base that valuation on a, as a standalone business, as an intrinsic business, as the enterprise value of that business as it exists today. Okay. And lastly, what else do I have here? Just know that financial purchasers, if you're t- looking at future in the future of selling your business, kind of have two broad choices, financial purchasers and strategic purchasers, as I said, and financial purchasers can never compete with strategic purchasers Okay, if in fact real synergies exist, synergies being one plus one equals more than two. If there's the opportunity for synergy, strategic purchasers will always win when it comes to paying for the business. And don't confuse the purchase price of a business in the future with the value of the standalone business. Okay, certainly has an influence, as I said, but you as an investor are a financial investor, you don't have that premium. All right. And if you're trying to raise money from financial investors, including angels or high net worth individuals, they are also financial investors. They will not be paying. They should not be paying you for a premium from a strategic purchaser that you may or may not receive on exit. All right. What should this company have done? 
could they have found a way to have their cake and eat it too? Is that possible? Can you get that really high valuation without turning off sophisticated investors? The answer is yes, through structure, as I started off this podcast by telling you, structure cures a lot of evils. They could have been creative, but they can't. I didn't even bother to ask them because they've already locked into this formulated capital structure that I talked about at the beginning. And what are they going to do? Are they going to go back to the people that they raised money from at a third of the valuation a year ago and tell them they changed their mind? We need to change the structure to accommodate this, that, and the other thing. That's not going to happen, right? That's a last case resort for them, last last case scenario for them. They will have to have failed on everything else before they go do that. And I don't think they will fail. I think they're going to raise money at their dedicated price from the retail market. And that's just the way it's going to go. But they could, if they started from scratch, and design their capital structure a different way. They could have had their cake and eaten it too. And that will be a topic for another day. Thank you so much for listening. Um, hey, this is a brand new thing for me, by the way. I did this whole podcast standing up as if it was a speech, doing that into an iPad. I don't know. Does it change the energy? I was I was hoping it did. Um, anyway, something to try. And so thank you for listening. We are on audio podcasts everywhere you listen to them, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. I don't even know all the places, but everywhere that you listen to audio podcasts, we are there. We're on YouTube, on the Winning Momentum podcast, on both both everywhere you listen to audio podcasts and YouTube. You just search out the Winning Momentum podcast and you are going to find us 218 incredible episodes on gaining momentum and changing your business and your life. And if you want a nice consolidated source, just go to thescottsinclair.com, thescottsinclair.com. Check us out there. No matter where you're listening to this or watching this, it means a lot. Give a comment, give a thumbs up, give a like, subscribe, whatever it is that's native to that platform. We love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week.